you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts 19. We will pick up this morning in verse 23 and go through the end of the chapter, verse 41. Please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. This is the word of the living God. Acts 19, 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together with the workmen of, of the similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear not only in Ephesus, but all, in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the, confu with the confusion and they rush with one accord into the theater dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of Paul, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then... Some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly, but they recognized that he was a Jew. A single outcry, when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have anything, if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. God, we call upon you now for your blessing to bless the preaching of your word. We know that in the preaching of your word, we hear the voice of Christ. So we pray for a straight cut for a right division and a clarity as you dispense your grace to your people. Make the blood of Christ effectual for souls today. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary. It's in the name of Jesus and for his kingdom's sake that we ask these things. Amen. 
We have in our text today a historical account of a riot in the city of Ephesus. I confess that in my younger years, I only knew the word riot as a joke. Like it's a laugh riot. Or when you have a good time, boy, that was a riot. But I remember when I was 20 years old, about a month after Stacy and I got married, there was a real riot. You may remember, you may have heard of the Rodney King riots or the 1992 Los Angeles riots. The riot connected with the LAPD's treatment of Rodney King and the court case and the outcome. That was the first real riot that I really knew anything of or maybe was old enough to care about. There actually have been a great number of riots and demonstrations of civil unrest in the history of the United States, especially a, a large number through the 60s and 70s. I don't think that comes as a surprise to any of us. But when we had things happen in the past, we didn't have a 24-hour news cycle like we have today. Even in the 1992 Los Angeles riots, they were in California. And in my life at that time, California seemed like so far away. It seemed like a different country. Insert your own California joke here. This California seemed so far away. So it didn't seem like something that we were going through. It seemed like something that they were doing on the West Coast. So for me, this riot was a big deal, but even then it didn't seem as big a deal as the last decade. It seems that we've had a real uptick in the number of riots in our country. It's either the number of events or, or maybe the reason it seems like there's more is because of the police and military reaction, or should I say non-reaction, as rioters are simply allowed, it seems, to run rampant over the laws of our land and the rights of peaceable law-abiding citizens. As we think about all this rioting, we get our minds thinking about what a riot is. It, it calls us to think about real riots. And we have in our text a very real riot. We've seen Paul, as we study through Acts, come up against resistance in various places. And we've even seen civil unrest that was of some magnitude. We've seen rioting in cities where Paul was. But this, in our text today, is the rioting of a city it seems that this riot is near all-inclusive. seems that most everyone, not everyone to the person, but almost everyone was involved with very few holdouts. So I've titled the message today, Ephesus Riots. Not riots in Ephesus, but Ephesus, the city riots. The text begins with us in verse 23 with a time marker about that time. And when we read the context, that which comes before and after, we believe that this is at the very end of Paul's time in Ephesus. At least two and a half years he's been there, possibly as much as four years ministering in this city. And it all comes to an end when Ephesus riots. About that time, we also have in verse 23, a figure of speech, a figure of speech something that is used to emphasize things. We have here a figure of speech used to emphasize these events. Here we find a latotes. Now I would be interested. Tell me later how many of you already knew that. We have a latotes. Remember, we, we've studied this in the past. A latotes is when you say something by denying its opposite. You say something by denying the negative or negating the opposite. So when you want to say something's good and you say, that's not bad. Not bad means it's good. That's a latotes. Uh, latotes are not difficult to understand. 
which means they're easy to understand. I, I hope that you find my exclamation of Latotes to be not too shabby, because, I don't know, I, I can't help it. Um, we, we also found Latotes in our scripture reading earlier today. Uh, if you look for figures of speech in the scripture, it's very, very important for us to understand what they mean. And here we have a Latotes. I would remind you that we have a same, the same kind of Latotes back in Acts 15 when there arose between Paul and Barnabas no small dispute. It's, it's saying something by denying the opposite. And, and it doesn't just say it, it magnifies it, it emphasizes it. So here we understand what this Latotes is in verse 23. There occurred no small disturbance. And by saying no small disturbance, Luke is telling us there was a great disturbance concerning the way. No small disturbance concerning the way. The way is just a, a name, one of the names used for Christianity for those who are followers of Christ. Some of you might say, I am a person of the way. Remember that Jesus told us he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way. And as we follow him, we follow the way. Christianity is definitely a way of life, a way of living. We often say in this church that the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, is not a way to eternal life, but it is a way of life for Christians. So, so we see here, and we should note that the Christian way of life is different from the world's way. This, this is different. And, and these are contrasted. The contrast between these two ways of life is notable. There was no small disturbance concerning the way which Demetrius will say later is different from our way. That's what the world is saying. And there's something here for us to learn as we think about Christianity and as we think about our walk with Christ, something, well, there's not that much difference in how you live. There's not much difference in the way of life between the Christian and the worldly. Some people who claim the name of Jesus fit in very well with the world. There's not much difference in their life and the life of their lost neighbor. These Ephesian idolaters saw something. They saw a clear distinction between the way they lived and these people of the way. Oh, that God would grant that our lives as Christians is marked different. That we are a peculiar people. We should say about these worshipers, these pagan worshipers, these Ephesians were worshipers of the goddess Artemis is what I read in my New American Standard. Maybe you were confused if your Bible has the name Diana, or maybe you're thinking, Ephesians, I thought that was Diana. Great is the goddess Diana. Well, it's, it's one Greek god. One name is the Greek name. One name is the Roman name. They both refer uh, basically to the same pagan goddess, although some have found some differences. Diana worship or Artemis worship has evolved over time and there are some differences over time. In mythology, Diana or Artemis, and you'll find me using those names interchangeably, by the way. Uh, Diana was the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. Now, this is not real. This is mythology. And these gods, if I can use the words of Paul, are no gods. But this is the, this is the myth. Uh, twin sister of Apollo. Diana was a diversified god. Uh, what I mean by that is Diana had many uh, or, or was ascribed many powers and many interests. I, I thought as I studied the fact that she was ascribed to be the goddess of bulls was not really significant. I didn't put it in my notes. And then we read from Exodus and it struck me that they made a bull, they made, they made a calf, and then now Diana. So it, it may not have any further connection, but it did strike me. She was the goddess of bulls. She was the goddess of wild animals. 
and of hunters of wild animals. Also of domesticated animals. This, isn't that a strange combination? And, and you might think, uh, don't point out strange, this, this is important for us as we think about this. The, the, the goddess who protects and watches over wild animals is also the goddess who protects and blesses the hunter who kills wild animals. Maybe you find that odd, but this pagan religion did not mind the blessing of two things which are at odds. We're going to see that again in just a moment. Diana was also the goddess of childbirth and of conception and of fertility. She was known as a mother figure. For this reason, there were images and stories of Diana's chastity and purity. But there were also images and practices on the other end of that spectrum. Parts of worshiping in the temple, worshiping Diana, was ritual engagement with temple prostitutes. So there's purity on the one hand and there's temple prostitutes on the other. And, and sexual promiscuity then among the, the worshipers of Diana would be normal and acceptable. Diana was the protector of infants and young children, they said. And it makes sense if she was known to be the, the goddess of fertility and of childbirth that she would be a protector of young children. But the temple prostitution would have caused many unwanted pregnancies, many babies which would be very inconvenient for the temple sex workers. So it also makes sense that abortion would be a common practice, at least tangentially connected to Diana. One author wrote this about Diana worship, saying that abortion was seen as a sacrifice to Diana. Abortion then, quote, abortion then is seen as an expression of maternal responsibility and not a failure of maternal love. Artemis stands for the refusal to give life if life is not pure and untainted, as Artemis might kill a wounded animal rather than to allow it to limp along miserably, so a mother might spare the child a painful destiny. That seems to me that they were trying to justify their, their act their, of their abortion. That they were trying to justify it by calling it sparing a child from a painful life. But the truth is that when a child is inconvenient, they could kill him or her without a second thought. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Obviously, today we don't have Diana worshipers. I've never met anyone who said, I'm a worshiper of Diana. I did come across one guy, a weird guy on the internet that said he bowed down to Diana. But you can find anything on the internet. But we don't, we don't have the... We're advanced. This was so long ago. And we don't have the same ignorance and the same superstition that they had so long ago that would bring men and women to worship a pagan goddess like Artemis, like Diana. Obviously, none of us know someone or have even heard of a Diana worshiper, but isn't it also painfully obvious that the sinful lusts that were a part of Diana worship are very much a part of our day and not those people way out there somewhere right here in the great state of Texas right here at home blocks from where we sit right now these things are still among us sexual promiscuity in our day is just assumed Taken for granted. Abortion is the murder of convenience. And it happens daily. People of God, we should be praying that God would allow that many of these murders would stop. 
by outlawing this atrocity in our land. This was the way of life in Ephesus. Diana worship was the main thing. The city had been at one time a port city, but with poor forestry practices and silt flowing into the rivers, there was no longer the ability to get ships into Ephesus. Miletus became the port city. And we'll find later that when Paul sails through, he has the Ephesian elders meet him in Miletus because that's where he can dock. That's where they can dock the ship. So, so it used to be a port city with lots of commerce, but, but things have changed. The temple of Diana, which by the way, was crafted beautifully and was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Diana would become the main attraction. Tourism of either worshipers or those who just wanted to come and see, would tourism was huge. It would become the main thing. Now, any of you who have lived in Waco for very long, you've seen a shift toward tourism because of things that go on that have gone on in our in our city. We see a shift. We kind of know what that's like to have all these looky loos coming in. If you're here and you're a looky loo, we're glad to have you. <laughs> but we know what that's like, and and. Ephesus would have been like this with much tourism, so many people coming. And, and even if you don't see Waco as a place of tourism, you've been to places of tourism. You've been to places of tourism and you know what it's like to go and see the Statue of Liberty or to see the Eiffel Tower, to see something. Well, some of you have been to Paris, Texas. They have an Eiffel Tower too. Let's look at verse 24. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith made... Silver shrines of, of Diana or Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. We have another Latotes here, don't we? <laughs> no small business. This was a big business. These trinkets and these these little whatnots, we would call them. These these things that are made of miniatures of the temple or images of Diana were a big sales item. Big sales item. This was big business. And I thought about the pewter statues they make of the Statue of Liberty. And I thought about the little statue that we have in our house of the Eiffel Tower. And, and I thought about those things. And, and it wouldn't just be Demetrius. He was a silversmith. There surely were other silversmiths. But there were also coppersmiths. And there were goldsmiths. And there were uh, many, much of what we have that we've uncovered through architecture is terracotta stuff. So stuff's being made and sold, and that's one of the main things here in Ephesus. Many people profited. False worship of Diana is putting bank in the pockets of many people. Someone has said, how many souls has the devil purchased? For just a little money. Well, I don't, I don't believe in that Diana stuff, but man, there's money in it. How many souls has the devil purchased? And sometimes it's not even money, is it? Sometimes it's just a feeling of prestige. Sometimes it's a little power. Satan purchases the souls of men cheaply. He can do that because of what Calvin noted that we all will know to be true. The heart of man is an idol factory. Our hearts are idol factories. And Christians, don't think the factory gets shut down when you come to Christ. You still have to guard against that. You still have to guard against making an idol of something, of someone. We have to guard against this. And this is what was going on. In verse 25, Demetrius calls for the, he calls for a workers guild meeting, if you will. All those who are in this trade, all those who come together, uh, something like a union meeting, maybe. He gathers the 
business owners, along with those who work in the trade, because it's, it's, it's everybody, right? It's those who own the businesses and it's those who work at the business. Our income is at risk. And he makes a case to protect their businesses, to guard that income. Demetrius appeals to them in a threefold appeal. His appeal is to profit, to piety, and to patriotism. Prophet, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. It seems clear to me that profit is the aspect of this appeal that is the primary concern. The main thing here is we're losing money. If you want to motivate people to some purpose, connect it to their wallet. And that's what Demetrius does here. We're losing money. But there's only a short mention of money and then we lay aside that and move to other things, other motivations. It seems maybe that focusing on money too much is not honorable. So we have these other appeals that may be more honorable. Piety, verse 26, you see and hear that not only here in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, I wonder because he later says that the whole world is worshiping Diana. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how deluded he was or how much he was just trying to make his case and maybe, maybe going beyond reality. And he says, this Paul has persuaded many to turn away considerable number of people saying that God's made with hands or no gods at all. I don't know how it is that a person who makes an idol with their hands can then turn around and worship that idol as though it is a god. It seems ridiculous. But we see it. We read about it this morning. Then we read about it this morning in our reading. And we see it in scripture. And we see it in history. And by the way, some of us make idols not even with our hands, only with our minds. And then we worship them as though they are real gods. That's what's happening here. I don't know if Demetrius was a real believer, a true believer, but he appeals to the religious belief of the masses. He's at least making this point. And so he appeals to prophet, he appeals to piety, and he appeals to patriotism. Not only is there a danger of losing our trade, but also of the great temple and our tourism falling off. We have a wonderful city. Think, and he's appealing to their patriotism. Let's not let this, this ruin our source of civic pride. So we have to, we, we hear what Demetrius says, and we have to forgive him for his poor theology. Demetrius attributes the turning of sinners to Jesus Christ. He attributes that to Paul. Paul is persuasive. And no doubt Paul was a skilled preacher and persuasive. But we know that it is the Lord alone who turns the hearts of sinners to Christ. It's only God. So Demetrius is wrong about this, but we, we understand and we forgive him for that. But we also appreciate this lost man's assessment of Paul's preaching ministry. It was a considerable number who had been converted. And the message that he heard from Paul, I'm sure it wasn't the only thing that Paul said, but it was the thing that really struck him where he lived. The message that he heard is, gods made by men are no gods at all. Now, this is pretty insightful into Paul's gospel. We hear today in our day that when we evangelize an area, a new area, and we, we take the gospel to a new place, that we should be respectful of their beliefs, that we should be respectful of their gods and their worship practices. We don't want to offend. Brothers and sisters, that is unbiblical. That is an unbiblical idea. Often in the Old Testament, when prophets of God spoke about false gods of some nation, they spoke with sarcasm. They spoke with ridicule. They spoke with derision. Remember Elijah with the prophets of Baal? From 1 Kings 18, 27, listen to this. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. 
Either he's occupied or he's gone aside. That's code for he's in the bathroom. <laughs> he's a God. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and you need to be louder to wake him up. Do you see that he is respecting their false God and their belief? No, that's not what's happening here. And Paul, I don't, I don't know that Paul spoke with that type of mockery, but Paul spoke clearly. Your gods are no gods. There is only one God. Demetrius appeals to prophet and piety and patriotism to work up the crowd. He might have intended to rile up these workers, but the next verse shows us that the whole city was incited to riot. Verse 28, when they were gathered, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater. This theater would have been a place of regular meeting, an arena that would probably see uh, two to 3,000 people. My understanding is you can still go to that arena today. Uh, so uh, what a thing to see. So this large meeting place, and, and it was the place where they would go to get information and to be further whipped up into a frenzy. The verse continues, they were dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. We're not sure what the plan was for these men. I got an idea there was no plan. But we know that whatever it was, it wouldn't be good. Beating them or killing them, they were going to inflict their mob rage on these men. Paul, they didn't find Paul, so we'll, we'll inflict it on these men. As these men are captured, kind of in Paul's place, if you will, Paul wants to go. Verse 30 tells us he wants to go into the assembly. What a guy. Paul's a man's man, isn't he? Let's go get him out of there. <laughs> That's awesome. We read in verse 30, Paul wanted to go in, but the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, that, that would be the, the, the upper crust of the city, who were friends of his, friends of Paul, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Paul is no coward. Paul is no coward. He wants to go in. He's going to rescue his friends or, or trade himself for them. Who knows what was in his mind? But we read the disciples would not let him go. Now friends, follow me closely here. Paul heard the wisdom of the church and submitted his thoughts and ideas to the body. He wanted to go. The disciples said no. He didn't go. Even as an apostle, a unique office with unique authority that has long since ended, but, but he had this unique authority, even as an apostle, he listened. I, I've put three things here for us to learn from this. First, we learn how we should submit ourselves to the church of Jesus Christ. We are too independent. Often we hear the voice in our head and we think that is sufficient to know the will and the wisdom of God. And there are things, listen closely, there are things that the scripture, the word of God speaks clearly to. And we can define those as God's will clearly laid out. What's an example? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit a clear. We don't have to think about that. It's very clearly laid down. But there are other things which are not explicit in Scripture. That are the things that are stated very clearly. Thou shalt not get killed. And there are things that are not even necessarily contained in Scripture. The example I have for that would be like Trinity. It's not explicitly stated, but it is necessarily contained in Scripture. What do we do in our lives when we come up against things that are not explicitly laid down in Scripture and they're not necessarily contained? I'm thinking about buying a new car. Is that explicitly laid out in Scripture? 
Is it necessarily contained? I'm thinking about changing jobs. I'm thinking about moving to a different city. I'm thinking about moving my church membership to another place. These things are not explicitly. You can't say, oh, it does say that I should be at Waco Family Baptist Church. That's not in there. And it's not necessarily contained. So how do we find God's will in this? I firmly believe that we should submit ourselves to the church. As a pastor, if, if I wanted to stop pastoring this church, let me say it a different way. If it was God's will for me to stop pastoring this church, the church would know it. The church would know it. If I get the idea that I want to be a missionary to some tropical island, I have had that idea. <laughs> if I get that idea, I should submit myself to the church. When most of us decide to move to another place or to move to another church, whatever we're deciding, input from the church from the elders, from the deacons, from the godly counselor, brothers and sisters that we have in our body, input from the church is needed. Now, some of you have lots of questions about this and much more could be said and I'm not gonna spend long on this. I'm not saying that the pastors or the deacons of the church should run your personal life. I'm not saying that at all. But there is something to be considered about the help and wisdom of God coming to us through his established church. That's a study for another day. But we see Paul here thinking better because he received input from the church. So that's the first thing that we learn from this interaction. Secondly, we learn from this the foolishness of those who determine they want to go and die for Jesus. I'm going to let that soak in so that you can say, is that what he said? Yes, that's what I said. It, we discover here, learn the foolishness of those who just decide I want to go and die for Jesus. Hear me clearly. There are times when dying for Jesus is the only right thing. Amen. There are. But Jesus said when he was on earth, if you go to a place and they reject you, dust your shoes off and go to the next place. If you go to a place and they will not hear you, go to another place. Don't lay down and die. Live another day to preach another day. It is a foolish notion to think that there is more honor in dying for Jesus than there is in living for Jesus. It's easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for him sometimes. One day you will die, but every day until that day, live for his glory. Paul didn't just feel like, well, I've got to stay here and be killed by this mob. He went to another place. He lived another day to preach another day that the gospel might be furthered. He lived to the glory of God. He will die. He will die for the cause of Christ. But that day is not every day. And that day is not this day. So we learn this. We Thirdly, we learn in these verses that Paul has friends who were not believers Paul has friends who were not disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul has lost friends. We cannot believe that these were Paul's closest pals. I am greatly, deeply concerned when I hear a Christian person say, my best friend in the whole world is an atheist. And I have heard that kind of thing. It, it concerns me deeply. How can you have such close ties, such close relationships with people who are not disciples of Christ? But though these were not Paul's closest pals, they were friendly. They considered Paul's friendship of some value. They looked out for his well-being. 
Christians, we err on one side or the other in this matter. We either don't have any acquaintances who are unbelievers. That's really hard for preachers sometimes. You just know church people and you're like, well, I don't know anybody who's lost. We err when we do that. Or we err on the other side and we befriend the world closer than the brothers and sisters who are in the same body as we. Let us allow Paul's example to inform our relationships. A common interest is all it takes to have a friend. I've known men in this very church who play golf regularly with lost people or play tennis regularly with lost people and had those relationships and they knew that man's a Christian. I've recently been contacted by a man I haven't seen in a decade, but he knew, and he said this when he called me, I knew you were a Christian and you were always fair and honest and, and things were going good. And, and when he faced difficulties in his life, he picked up the phone and called me. And I was able to share the gospel with him in great detail because I had a friend who was lost. That would never have happened if I had said, I cannot be your friend because I am only friends with Christians. I would never have had the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you. That would never have happened if I had been so closely befriending the world that he couldn't tell the difference in my way of living and his way of living. We need to have friends, acquaintances who are lost. We have that example here, Paul. Verse 32, and I'm trying to hurry. Verse 32 tells us things got out of hand. Most people didn't even know what they were there for. We're riding. This is a good riot. What are we riding for? I don't know. But this is a good one. <laughs> this is a really good one. They're just rioting. They're gathered in this arena, in this theater, and they're here. We're going to find out now what's going on. We're going to, we're going to focus our, our riot now. In verse 33, a Jew named Alexander stands up in the mob. He, he may have been put forth by others. Maybe he volunteered and was self-appointed. It seems that he was put forth by the Jews. Maybe because he was a coppersmith. Listen, Demetrius, a metal worker started this with metal workers. Let's get a metal worker to address them. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But the Jews also believed that Diana was not a real God. The, the Jews were no more popular and the crowd did not want to hear from them. So Demetrius is just drowned out with chanting. And we should not think, I said Demetrius is drowned out, Alexander is drowned out with chanting. And we shouldn't think here about Alexander that he was going to stand up and make a defense for Paul. He was going to stand up and say something, but it wasn't going to be to defend Paul. I believe, and it's very likely, that this Alexander is the same Alexander from the end of Paul's second letter to Timothy, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. May the Lord repay him for his works. I think it's the same guy. The Jews were not friends with Christianity, and they still aren't. There may be some shared moral stances that we may agree on some moral issues, but the only issue that really matters. Who is Jesus? They're lost on that. In verse 35, my New American Standard says the town clerk stood up to speak. The town clerk. And it's evident that this was not a town clerk like we think of a clerk today. It's evident this is not. This is the man who was the highest official in the city. Some have compared him to like a city manager. He certainly was an organizer. He would be the liaison between the city of Ephesus and Rome. And he was respected by the people. He speaks. He speaks like a politician, but he speaks. And he appeals on some of the same points that Demetrius appealed. He doesn't speak of profit. You've got the crowd and some of them wouldn't care about profit. But he speaks to them about patriotism and piety. And he also speaks to them about protection, if we want to add another P. 
Just very quickly, after quieting the crowd, he says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there that does not know the city of the Ephesians is the guard? We, we are known. This city is great, and you are the people of this city. So he appeals to patriotism. We are the guardians of, and here's piety, the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven, probably a meteorite that came down that had some rough, grotesque resemblance of a woman and it was put in the temple and, and worship. So he speaks to patriotism, he speaks to piety, and then in verse 36 he begins to speak to protection. These are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. This is where he's starting to calm the crowd. The Romans, the Romans didn't put up with rioting. When Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, they were putting down a rebellion. The Romans didn't put up with rioting like we see in some of our cities in the United States. They put down riots. What is it going to take? Kill, harm, whatever, crush it. Whatever has to be done, we will stop this civil unrest. And this town clerk is saying, guys, this is what's going to happen. We are in danger. We are going to be, we are going to be in trouble. It won't be Paul. Paul won't be punished by the Romans because of this riot. It won't be him. It'll be us. And then he points out in verse 37 some things that, that we thank God here for his common graces. For his common graces. You've brought these men here. They're neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our, of our goddess. He points out that these men, including Paul, have not broken any laws. These laws are protecting Paul here. In Christianity, he's saying Christianity was not a violent religion. Listen, Christianity was not then and is not now and never will be a religion advanced by the sword nor by politics. There have been, some of you are thinking about attempts to do that, to advance Christianity by the sword. Those things are not Christian acts. Those things are against Christ. The preaching of Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation. Not a sword, not political maneuvering. He reminds him in verse 38, there are courts, there are proconsuls, there are proper channels to settle these disputes. And in verse 40, we're, we're in danger here being accused of rioting. Well, it was a riot. Notice how we have here another example of God protecting his people, specifically protecting Paul and the, the believers there in Ephesus by his good providence and sovereignty using unbelievers. It's not the first time we've seen it, but here is another example. Beloved, this is important. When we see Riots in our own lives. Whatever shape those things take. What I, what I mean by riots in our lives is those things that are out of control or out of our control. Those things that seem to threaten either our lives or threaten our peace and prosperity. Those things that come in and, and we're fearful. But we need to remember this text and the others that shows how God protects his people. God can and does protect us. <clears throat> what he brings to our lives, what does come into our lives by God's hand, I, I mean everything, is good. And when we can't figure out how it's good, it's still good. When I, when I can't even think about it as a good thing, I have to remember 
times like this, God could have stopped this earlier. He allowed it to go to this point and then he stopped and he knows the temperature that we can take. He knows the depth of the water that we can go through. We have to remember what we proclaim together. What God ordains is right. And it's good. God, teach me this lesson you're trying to teach me. Do this thing you're trying to do quickly. This is uncomfortable. We can pray things like that. God, take us through this. Think about how this riot, the whole city's involvement, everybody, everybody is involved in some way. Even the guy who stands up and speaks sense and quiets the ground, he's involved. Everybody's involved. The talk that would happen afterwards, the, the talk that would spread to the surrounding areas about these events. Think about how this may have served to advance the kingdom and grow the church of Jesus Christ. Those who wondered, what was that all about? They would inquire, they would, they would want more details. And as they investigated, they would see that Christianity is peaceable. What is, what is this Christianity? Tell me about it. God could use this event as a catalyst to advance his kingdom and to grow his church. Paul he wasn't stirring up trouble. He simply preached. He preached that there's only one God. That idols are dead trinkets with no power. He preached that the one God of heaven is holy and cannot tolerate sin. He preached that men and women, boys and girls are sinners full of sin and justly, rightly bound for hell. Then he preached that God the Father sent Jesus Christ the Son to redeem sinners. To do this by living a perfect life and then dying on Calvary's cross. He preached that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to God unless they go through Jesus. He preached salvation is received by repentant faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And friends, that's still the message of every preacher of God. That's still the message today. Sinner, won't you come today to Christ and be saved? God, we pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. We pray that you would save our sons and daughters. Save our unbelieving friends. God, where it's your will, give us new unbelieving friends that we might speak about Jesus. Help us to know how to be a friend to sinners. And at the same time to be a lover of our Savior. It's in Jesus' name and for your kingdom's sake that we ask these things.